Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. We are recording. I'm calling you from New York City. Um, my, I have a rather, it may not be an unusual problem to you, but I, uh, I'll, I'll come right to the point. Um, would you be at all interested in uh, harboring the thought of piloting a transatlantic balloon flight? Hey guys, what we're listening uh, to today is to. some of the <laughs> audio know, from um, a video that LTV is going to be airing. Um, this weekend about the free life and the free life was a hot air balloon that took off from a field in Springs back in uh, September of 1970. So it's been 50 years. And the phone call that I just played was the pilot of the, of the free life. Um, this British guy who was hired, what's his name? Malcolm. Malcolm Brighton. Malcolm Brighton. And, um, and the phone call was from Rod Anderson, who was this guy who had this idea to be the first to sail a hot air balloon across the Atlantic Ocean. It was a, a record to set, I guess. Any man, any man balloon. Oh, that doesn't count for the Hindenburg? Because it made it. <laughs> but the, 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 the difference is that this was not only a hot air balloon, it was also a helium balloon. It was a hybrid balloon which is an important distinction to make. <laughs> so with us today is Bill Sutton. Hi, Bill. Hi, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. And we have Brian Boyhan with us. Hey, Brian. Hey, Annette. Uh, I'm Brian Boyan. I'm the uh, former editor and publisher of the Express and uh, now writing a bit. And he wrote the big story on the free life. And my name is Annette Hinkle, and I am the arts and living editor of the Express News Group. September 21st, 1970, the free life disappeared over the North Atlantic. In the subsequent search, no trace of the balloon was ever found. I think what's really wild is like, this is one of those stories that I had always heard about ever since I moved here, was about the free life, which was the name of the balloon. And um, it just sounded like this really wacky thing that only like people in the 70s would try. Um, you know, this couple, I'll let you talk about it a bit, Brian. But So Brian wrote a very long story about the anniversary of the free life. And um, I think what's interesting is it's like it didn't, you know, it didn't seem like there was a, a ton of forethought. The, the couple whose idea it was, that's Rod and Pam, they didn't really have any experience with ballooning. It was, but they apparently had fairly deep pockets to make this happen. I'll never forget the day that Rod told me that he had this friend. The first thing he did is he threw out some maps and he said, what do you think those things are? And there were little squiggly lines going across these pieces of paper that said Atlantic Ocean on it. And I said, I have no idea. And he said, well, those are air currents. What would you think about a balloon going across the Atlantic Ocean? And I, I'd never even read about balloons that I can remember. I, I must have read, you know, a thousand times about different balloon ventures from uh, that time till now. And I said, I just think that's the craziest thing I've ever heard of. So they hired um, this Malcolm guy to be the pilot. 
Um, but it just, I don't know, it had always captured my imagination. I never knew much about it. So I was really impressed with the amount of research that you were able to dig up on this. Well, the thing that I, uh, I had heard about it off and on, uh, and then um, I was always sort of intrigued by the name of the balloon, the free life. And I wasn't sure if it, was, it sounded almost cultish. Um, but yes, you're right. Rod, uh, 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 Rod Anderson, who married Pamela Brown, uh, who came uh, from a very powerful, wealthy, and distinguished Kentucky family, uh, got this notion in his head that he wanted to do something impressive. Talking to Jeannie Chips Henderson from LTV, who was a friend of, of Pam Brown and a friend of Rod Anderson, said that Rod, uh, at the time, he had been the director of admissions for New York University and then uh, had also become a, a commodities broker on Wall Street. And uh, as she said, marrying into this family, he felt he wanted to be something more interesting than just simply the director of admissions for NYU. So somebody brings up this idea, nobody's ever done this before. And the family was, it was Kentucky Fried Chicken, right? Yeah, her brother, uh, her father was um, a, a very successful attorney, uh, served one year in the US Congress, and about three decades in the Kentucky State House. It kind of reminds me of like the Rockefeller kid that went off to New Guinea to like, you know, and then of course we know what happened to him. Actually, we don't know what happened to him. All we know is he never came back from his journey. So very interesting, the idea that the sons and daughters of powerful people, they're trying to define themselves in a way that is not in politics, but in something really kind of out there and exploration wise. I mean, even look at JFK Jr., you know? Like he was always kayaking off Iceland and doing all these kind of dangerous adventure sort of things. Right. I think that there was a real, the notion of adventure, of what an adventurer is. And I think that, uh, you know, if I had to project into this, I think Rod Anderson said, well, uh, I can't make a gazillion dollars. I'm not a powerful politician, but maybe I could be an adventurer. And he kind of launches himself into this. You know, he, uh, he even gets Abercrombie and Fitch, which... Of course, in 1970, Abercrombie and Fitch is not the same Abercrombie and Fitch that we know today that sells, you know, tight blue jeans and logoed shirts. They were serious outfitters, and they had they had outfitted expeditions to the Arctic. Um, they were really known as more as adventurous outfitters than they were for uh, branded, trendy clothing. I walked into Abercrombie's one day hoping that that they might be able to supply us with a sleeping bag and uh, maybe some flares and some things. And uh, um, the management said uh, that they were delighted to go through the store and make a list. And uh, for a man to be let loose in Abercrombie's, yo, go ahead and make a list. <laughs> it's kind of a, a wild way out experience. And, and they gave him kind of a blank check, right? I mean, he talks about that in the, in the, uh, in the documentary. So, they, you know, they told him to just, you know, go through the store and make a list. And he was just almost giddy talking about that, to just have the ability to go through and get all the gear he needed. I just kind of picture him in the pith helmet aisle. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the way things turned out, he may have spent a little bit too much time in the pith helmet aisle. <laughs> But he had, so, uh, and, and Jeannie Henderson uh, really kind of uh, makes the point that these guys, I mean, they spent some time. They were, they were clearly neophytes. 
this was Rod's baby, um, and he threw himself in. Spent four years in planning this. They even had done a a test uh, flight out in Idaho. Of course, the big flaw, the fatal flaw, is this pilot that they had hired early on in the experience to kind of help them through it. At the last minute, almost literally the last minute, he bails uh, in July, and they're set to take off in August. Jeannie says Rod thought he was a coward. Uh, he was not an adventurous soul. He was not a risk taker. He's a coward. We don't need to talk about him. Maybe we shouldn't mention his name if we're calling him a coward. Uh, <laughs> And then, so they're like kind of strapped and they got to figure out, oh my God, we got to get a pilot in here. And they, uh, they, they recruit this guy, uh, uh, Malcolm Brighton, who comes highly recommended. So at the time in England, uh, and maybe even still so, hot air ballooning and uh, ballooning is, is a serious sport and much more so than it was in certainly in the US at that time. Uh, and so they turn to the mother country for ballooning and uh, they get this guy, Malcolm Brighton, to come over. They convince him to at least take a look at it. He spends a week over here and says, yeah, I can do this. Mr. Brighton, what did you think of this project when uh, Rod first proposed it? Well, I've, I'm extremely interested. I've, I've been interested in Atlantic Crossing for a long time, but I've lacked sponsorship. And uh, here was a, a, an opportunity to take it up immediately. Of course, I said I was interested and uh, came over immediately to look it over. And how long did it take you to decide? Seven days, <laughs> with no pressure from them at all. We had planned to fly at an altitude between six and 10,000 feet. Now, uh, over the past 10 years, the average speed at those altitudes is about 20 knots. And uh, at, during the month of August, and uh, uh, so, given that, we would we would undoubtedly be be out there uh, for a week or so. You have a company which builds balloons. What do you think of this balloon? Um, obviously, I'm prejudiced because I'm a balloon builder. Um, I think I could have done better, but at this stage, here and now, inflated and ready to go, I feel optimistic. Yeah, I mean, just looking at that video too, like the gondola that they were in, it, there wasn't much to it, was there? No, Brett King, uh, as a 10-year-old, goes over there and he looks into, the, into this thing and he goes, how the hell are they going to, you know, not, I don't think he says hell, but how, how are they going to do this? How long was, was it expected, to, the flight expected to be to cross the, the ocean? Oh, maybe five days. Yeah. You know, they were going to get up uh, into the, their, their goal was to uh, float this thing up to around Maine. Uh, where they would catch the prevailing westerly winds, which would blow them uh, 2,500 miles to, uh, to Europe. Uh, that was the game plan. And uh, they got up as far as just about to Newfoundland. They were a little north of Maine. And um, there was this weather system that had been building. And whether or not Brighton actually knew that this weather system was there or not, we don't know. But he radios into Gander, Newfoundland. Uh, Gander is famous for what? This is a quiz. The Titanic? Gander was famous because that's where a lot of the, uh, the planes that were destined for uh, the U.S. after 9-11 were rerouted. Ah. I think that's also where there was, a, um, there was a pretty cool airport there because in the old days when planes couldn't fly all the way to Europe, they would stop in Gander, I believe. So there was, I heard there's like a really cool vintage airport from the 50s in Gander. Well, that would be a cool destination trip. Mm -hmm. uh, I think just Newfoundland in general. 
But in any event, he, uh, he radios in, it gets a weather report, and the meteorologist warns him that there is a heavy cumulus front, cold front, coming in. Heavy rains, 45 knot winds. So he's thinking, well, maybe I can fly above this. So now let's just pause for a second. So the route that they were planning had them flying at about 8,000 to 10,000 feet. That would have been, that was their sweet spot. They really couldn't go much higher than that. And in fact, uh, by t in today's aviation laws, if you were flying above 12,000 feet, whether you're in a balloon or an airplane, you have to have oxygen. You have to have access to oxygen. They were not so equipped. They did not have, even though Abercrombie and Fitch outfitted much of their, their, their adventure, oxygen was not among the, uh, the things on board. He should have hit the oxygen aisle after the pythonic aisle. Yes. <laughs> so he radios, he talks to the guy, the meteorologist, and said, can you tell me how high this, uh, the cumulus are? And the guy goes, uh, 18,000 to 20,000 feet. Oof. So here's a wall a cumulus of a cold front coming down, bearing down on them, 45 knot winds, torrential rain below. He can't, he can't go above it. He can't go through it. He can't go under it. So he, he then shortly thereafter lets them know that they've decided to ditch, uh, that they can't, uh, they can't. And this is only 30 hours in, really into the, uh, into the trip. Do we think that they were over land when they ditched? Or were no, they... no, no, they were in the water. He, he even says, we're going, uh, we're going into the water. A couple of hundred miles off of Newfoundland, uh, they figure. Jeannie talks about that. You know, the, the, just the terror of that, of falling into that water at that height. And what some of the reports indicate that there were seeds that were 15 to 20 feet. through the month of September and so forth is tropical storm time. And uh, uh, the, the more into September we get, the more uh, danger there, there is in terms of storms. However, the university suggests that we needn't be concerned with that to a, uh, to a great extent because they feel they can program us, as it were, um, between storms. If that makes any sense. In other words, uh, we would not launch unless... Uh, uh, One of the things that struck me is that, like, it just seems like a really bizarre time to take off 
it's kind of like the Donner party, you know, trying to get over the mountains after the first snow. It's like, you should have been a little, you know, if they hadn't gotten lost, they would have been there two weeks earlier. It would have been fine. Um, but I got the sense, like just kind of reading your story that as they had dumped more money into it and more people had donated, it was sort of like they felt committed, you know, in a way that they weren't, even though it was September 20th and probably not the best time to start flying over the North Atlantic because of the winter, fall, winter storms, that, um, that they just felt sort of like they had so many people involved, they couldn't back out at that point. Uh, yes, that's the, that's the consensus. And uh, one of the other stories I read kind of leading up into this, uh, the author makes the point that momentum is a hard thing to stop. Uh, and um, I think that they felt, everybody felt that um, there was this commitment. Jeannie says that by the end, it really became an obsession. And there was no way that you were going to stop it. Uh, even uh, I, I think that um, Rod Anderson at some point just said, uh, just thought to himself, let's just get this thing off the ground. You know, and they show up and there's a thousand, fifteen hundred people, many of them who were who were volunteers who, who had spent the entire summer donating their time and buying into this project. Hot lights here. Um, what are you doing there, bud? The free life, not the hot life. We had to change the whole pilot. The pilot was too small? No, no, Mountain didn't like it. That's what struck me is, is just the whole, you know, Springs community pulling, pulling behind this and almost like this, you know, secret community effort to, to get this thing going. And I think, you know, not wanting to, to back down with part of that is probably not wanting to, to disappoint all these, these people in the community that, that were, you know, helping them to charge ahead and wanted to see this thing be successful. It would have been a victory not only for them in the, in, in the balloon, but for, for the entire community. Which means laying out the balloons, keeping everything dry. Uh, we'll lay this kind of cloth over everything. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, uh, as Jeannie says, I think that Springs felt that this is something that they owned. You know, it was their, uh, it was their project. Uh, I mentioned the story that, you know, Springs, according to Jeannie, Springs uh, had um, got short shrift is what she said. She said they really never got the attention that, that East Hampton did. And this was something that they felt was their own, that they invested in their time, their energy, their, uh, their emotions. And they clearly wanted to see this thing succeed. It was their, it was their baby. Uh, and they were as much of this team uh, as the three people who were on board. Uh, if you look at, um, at the film, uh, there's one scene and there are like three or four guys, all of their matching red overalls and they're, you know, hugging each other. This thing had gone off and, you know, um, it's the same kind of spirit I think you have if, you know, uh, if you worked at, uh, at the Grumman Air Plant, uh, like during World War II, you know, you weren't up there fighting uh, in those planes, but God damn it, you built the thing, and uh, and you 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 feel here's a uh, here's a piece of me up there with them. Willem de Kooning was even involved, which I thought was really kind of cool. Yeah, it kind of underscores the uh, the level of community involvement. Uh, there were, I think, you know, a few artists who were involved in it. Uh, de Kooning uh, apparently used to ride down on his bike on a regular basis whenever they were doing trials or working out in the field and probably rode over to the um, uh, barn where they were putting this all together. One of the, the sentiments that keep coming back over and over again is the notion of this being a fantastic thing, something very unusual. 
Pam Topham says when she gets there in the morning and all these people are milling around, it was like Oz. It was almost otherworldly. And if you make the 60s connection, which other writers have done, there's this sense of wonderment that I think the, the 60s generation kind of spoke to, this notion of renewal, of rebirth, of energy, of something, something new, something exciting. And I think that this whole free life really spoke to that sentiment. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com How old were, um, were Pam and Rod and Malcolm when they took this trip? Uh, Pam was 28. Uh, as was Jeannie Chips, and um, uh, Rod and Malcolm were both 32. Not old people, you know, and you would ask me, I guess, if that was Jeannie uh, Henderson in the uh, first minute of the, uh, of, the, of the movie, and it is. And uh, so here's Jeannie Chips at 28, and there's this kind of, I don't want to say flower child, but there's this kind of like innocence and optimism uh, that's in her voice. It was an incredibly fantastic project. And uh, uh, the, I think the beauty of the project was that it was not complicated by all sorts of, of, of uh, complex things. I mean, they were doing it pure and simple. It was there to be done, and they were doing it, and it was a new and different, different and exciting thing to be done. The enthusiasm they had for it was, was so fantastic because it was a project that just suited Pam and Rod And then perfectly. Uh, you talked to her afterwards. I, you know, I interviewed her just you know, a few days ago about the searching for it and uh, the cold reality, I think, that a lot of people in those days following that felt. And uh, with the benefit of 50 years of reflection, uh, how she can look back on that person that was her 50 years ago and think, what a strange optimism, what strange hope that they had that this would happen. And at 28, you really don't think people are going to die or certainly not die like this. So Jeannie actually went up to Newfoundland to look for them, right? You had that sort of an interesting take. Yeah, I, was, I, I wasn't aware of that. And that was sort of like as I was rushing to meet deadline, it was something I learned. And I thought, well, this is pretty interesting. So she went up there, the family, the Brown family uh, funded a number of search parties looking for any sign of their daughter. And um, Jeannie went up there, uh, took a couple of flights. She actually went around with a photo of the gondola and uh, the balloon, went to various um, uh, marinas, uh, shipyards, uh, commercial, spoke to commercial fishermen, anybody who might be out on the water looking. Uh, and she also uh, took a couple of flights. And one flight she took was uh, with this renowned psychic that the Brown family had hired. He was famous at the time because he had been consulted on the Manson murders, which had just happened a year, year before, right? And uh, so he's flying up there and the two of them are flying around uh, looking and they, of course they see nothing. And he goes, oh, yes, yes, there are, two of them are still alive, but one is dead. 
And then she said, uh, a day or so later, he pulls her aside. He said, they're all dead. Uh, they're all gone. Uh, they should stop this search. So the family, the Brown family, continues to invest, and they hired what, what Jeannie said were mercenaries, which I, I take to mean kind of professional searchers, you know, pe people who take a plane up and they brought some. She described it as a four-engine Pan Am plane, and they search large swaths of the ocean uh, and find nothing, uh, of course. And then when she takes one other flight and she goes up with a, in a small plane uh, with a pilot, and it's a very, very cloudy day, and they're flying above the clouds. The pilot's looking for a hole to go through to get underneath and get below, and he finds one, and they're very, flying very low and lower than most of the other planes had gotten. And she said, I looked down at the ocean at that point, and I kind of got it. And she said, we're not going to find anybody. You can't find anybody in this. This is, this is not the ocean like we know. It's not like our ocean that we see from the beach with kids frolicking. This is a different place. And uh, as I mentioned in the story, uh, John Brown's senior's wife, who had invested in this and encouraged his daughter to go do this, uh, his wife divorced him uh, shortly thereafter. No portions of the balloon ever washed up on shore or anything like no, that? No, not that I'm aware of. And, uh, and I, uh, uh, apparently somebody had seen fragments of the, uh, of the gondola. It was a yellow uh, decahedron. Is that a 10-sided uh, thing? So it would be a uh, kind of a roundish thing. Wasn't, as somebody mentioned, really designed for heavy seas. You know, maybe if it was a flat calm, the thing would have floated along nicely. There was no bow necessarily. It wasn't really designed, I don't think, to ride anything. Yeah, I don't think they expected to go down in the North Atlantic. They did not. Clearly, they did not. How long was it before then that that transatlantic balloon record was actually accomplished? Eight years later. So there had been, leading up to the free life, there had been five other attempts, or they were the fifth, I think, attempts to cross the Atlantic in a balloon, in a manned balloon. It's going back as far as the late 19th century. Uh, I think that was the first attempt and all failed. And then there were 10 other attempts in the eight years following. In 1978, a, uh, an American team, three guys, successfully made it. They landed in France, uh, celebrated. And uh, Jeannie says she remembers when they landed and watching the celebration. And uh, she said it was like Lindbergh landed. And she said it was just so disappointing, you know, that you know, they had put such an effort and they were really hoping for this, something special to come out of it and something just the opposite happened. So this wasn't just a, a, an out of the blue dream that they had. At the time, other people had tried it and were trying it. And, and this was just something that was, that a lot of people, well, I don't know a lot of people, but a few people were, were trying. That's correct, yeah. Yeah, there were, they were five, they, I think they were the fifth attempt to actually cross the Atlantic. I wonder if it's too, like, sort of representative of that era, you know, like, every, like, you know, Everest had been climbed and submarines have been invented. It's almost like young board people that worked uh, on Wall Street needed to find another way to, you know, the Northwest Passage, you know, was a bust. <laughs> so they had to figure out something else to, I don't know, do people still do that? Are there still adventures? Uh, yeah, you know, there's always something that hasn't been done. 
uh, and we continue to do it. I mean, uh, you, know, you, you fly to the moon, you fly to Mars. There are all of these things that haven't been done. You know, we've conquered so much on the visible Earth. We haven't done much below the, you know, the sea uh, as much. Um, although there's, you know, constantly people pushing the envelope there. There are people who fly in squirrel suits. You know, uh, I think there's all of these things that people continue to create uh, and invent for themselves, you know, doing it solo. And, and that has been done solo. Uh, the around the world circumnavigation uh, in a balloon was only completed in 1999. I mentioned that in the story. And that was by the same type of balloon, but much, 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 much larger. By same type, you mean the, the dual? Yes, the hybrid uh, Rosier, I think is the, uh, is the name of it, uh, that style balloon, but, but many, many times larger. You had said in your story that, that, that it looked like that balloon really wasn't suitable to go across the Atlantic to begin with. That's what Jeannie says. She said it was much too small to uh, actually have made that, uh, that voyage. So how did they pick springs? It didn't seem like they had any connection to the area before coming out to do this? Uh, they didn't. Um, you know, and that's the question I asked Jeannie. I said, well, I'm thinking, I thought Jeannie may, may have lived out here uh, before that, and uh, they came out because of her, but no, she came out because of them. Um, he, uh, so a, a couple of things. One is, uh, chiefly, was his proximity to New York, where they both lived. He looked on a map, apparently, and said, why not the east end of Long Island? Get out by the, uh, as close to the ocean as you can get. And he comes out, and he's scouting territory, I guess, and he winds up going into East Hampton Town Hall, and he uh, winds up in a conversation with Bruce Collins, who was East Hampton Town supervisor at the time, and he tells his whole story about what he and his wife want to do, and um, uh, Bruce Collins says, you should go up to see my friend George Sid Miller. He's, he's probably got a piece of property up there that's going to be perfect for you. It's flat, uh, and it's uh, very near the water, and the, and the spot is ideal for if you if you not today, but if you look on those images from what it was like back then, it was flat as a pancake. There was really nothing on it, you know, and it was a clear sail to um, over Akabonic Harbor and out, you know, out into open water. It's something about it, this story. It's just very, it's very 1970, you know, I don't know. It is. I'm, and I'm watching the film and there's, you know, it, it just had that 70s, that vibe. And, you know, I certainly wasn't old enough to remember a lot of that, but it, you know, it, it struck me that, you know, here they are with, with these, you know, with these liquid gas, you know, igniters and all that, and they're all smoking, you know, smoking, lighting cigarettes and, and pipes and all that next to the high explosives. And it's like, well, yeah, that's the 70s. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah. Well, also, just the fact that, I mean, the, the, it didn't seem like there were any real officials there. Like, you, can you imagine trying to do that today? How much crap you would get? Oh, you need a permit. You need a permit. You know, and, From like at every level, all the way down. You know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah, but I guess if the supervisor recommends that you should launch your balloon from Sid Miller's farm, I guess it's okie dokie. Uh, but you know, so uh, a 70s vibe, uh, for those of us who grew up in the 60s and the 70s, the 60s were somewhat different than the 70s. The 60s were the more innocent kind of. Uh, the 60s were Woodstock. The 70s were Altamont. You know, the, the crushing defeat of the of the uh, Haight-Ashbury generation, the age of innocence. And uh, I think for most people though, 1970 was just kind of like an extension of the 60s. It was, it had, it, it had, that's the vibe that it had. And it was this, 
Anything is possible. Turn it over to the youth and let's try something new and exciting. to say back then don't fool with mother nature and don't forget your pith helmet and your pith helmet i really didn't realize there was an entire aisle for that well not anymore abercrombie is now like you know belly shirts and like brian was saying tight jeans for teenagers i think you know abercrombie sort of lost their market you know uh after all of the mountains had been climbed and the uh people weren't going out and doing adventures did we become less adventurous as a people instead of hiking through the Himalayas? Well, no, there's plenty of people doing that based on the number of bodies that are. Oh, that's true. I mean, maybe that's the thing. It's like, that's become ordinary, you know, like hiking, you know, getting to Mount Everest, it's basically just a check that you write, you know? Yeah. Right. That's one of the complaints right. I've heard. So, so maybe these guys weren't so far off. Let's get a balloon up, up and away. Must be there was no good TV back then. And now people just stay home and watch TV all day. No, you have to, you have to admire their, their spirit, right. And their tenacity and, and their desire to, you know, to do something nobody had done before. To kind of, maybe to kind of to Annette's point, uh, the, the notion of adventure, notion of doing something that's truly adventurous is a it's like kind of a weekend activity people go out and they'll spend like you know a couple of thousand dollars on a on a coat or something little that enables them to go wandering off and uh you know a weekend okay so i did that over the weekend uh, what's next you know rather than the commitment to really uh exploring discovering something that's new it's like that movie up with the balloons yeah i love that movie the guy did that in a lawn chair yeah. Yes, that's right. And so, so what fun adventures do you have for the weekend? I'll be checking out, um, you know, Snapchat and TikTok for adventurous people doing adventurous things so that I don't have to. Well, <laughs> how far we've fallen. <laughs> it's, it's, it's impossible practically to describe this beauty up there, this, this incredible stillness and the, the no wind um, thing, you know, is... It's just incredible. It's the only way to hear the true noise of the sea because on an, uh, any other conditions, you've got the wind blowing over your ears if you're standing on the beach or you've got the noise of a boat or something around you. But up there with total silence around you, the, the noise of the sea is just coming up at you. Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com.
Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27east.com, and sagharborexpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.